2: Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shape me, published by Headline and out now. It's been described as a mashup between a Nancy Mitford novel and Fleabag. It's a book for women and those who love them, and it's about women and how our relationships with each other make our lives brilliant and sometimes impossible. I'm the eldest of six girls, and my sisters are the only women I would kill for and the only women I've ever wanted to kill. The Sisterhood is available from bookshops nationwide. If you want to support the podcast, buying it is the very best way for you to do that. This week, I've been reading Mary Wellesley's piece in the LRB about anchoresses, the women who chose a life of seclusion and religious contemplation around the 11th and 12th centuries. Anchoresses were supposed to be in a state of constant contemplation, often confined within a single room. They were allowed to give advice to visitors who sought their instruction when they weren't meditating for days at a time or sleeping standing up. It sounds like a tough life, but I can't be the only person thinking that if they'd had Kindles in the 11th century, it might have been quite appealing. Mary Wellesley's piece, in which she reviews Hermits and Anchorites in England, edited by E.A. Jones, is in the 23rd of May issue of the LRB and it's fascinating reading for historians and aspiring recluses. By way of contrast, this week's guest is an advocate for living out loud. Gino Dawson is an award-winning, best-selling YA author and activist. She's the school's role model for Stonewall, and she's written a brilliant book for adults, The Gender Games, a memoir with a powerful discussion about gender that charts her experience as a trans woman. She might be the first guest we've interviewed who's written a banned book. This book is gay, was banned from public libraries in a town in Alaska. Her 16th book, Meat Market, is about Jana, a reluctant teen supermodel who discovers that getting everything you think you want can make you feel very lonely. It's smart, funny, pacey, and you care about every character. I tore through it. We hung out with Gino in Hove with her adorable puppy prince. She made delicious banana bread, and we talked about Armistead Mopin, Mallory Blackman, what it's like to teach books to kids, and the giddy thrill of getting very, very scared. Chair you might have the most organised can I describe the sitting. Yeah. Is this your, your sitting room and
1: study? So this is yeah, so I've only it's like a little one bed flat. So this is like lounge and office area and then round the back there's bathroom, kitchen and bedroom. I love your office. I love your fabulous light up freak show sign. Are those bulbs functional. And they do function, yes, except for one which has never functioned, which is annoying. Oh, and also, I'm excited
2: to see your Ariel,
1: because, do you remember, I think the last time I saw you properly, to do a bit of a,
2: you know, wanky, like, oh, we see each other in real life. It was at a bar on Halloween um, in Brighton, and it was um, a Disney drag night, I think, for Halloween.
1: Was it? Yeah. Oh my god, I have no memory of this. And it was,
2: like, after the um, Armistead Mopan
1: Oh, yes, 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 yes. I uh, know exactly, yes, bar, Broadway, yeah. yes. And lots of, I think, you
2: know, little... Yes. Teenagers singing Let It Go mostly, let's be real, but uh-huh. I
1: think there are a few aerials.
2: Yes, it's that so. is a
1: very off-brand aerial, though. That is not a Disney-endorsed <laughs> aerial. Do you like the unofficial ones? <laughs> Oh yeah, that was that was a knockoff gift from somebody for a joke. But Little Mermaid, although very problematic, is probably my Disney favorite, and I did want to be Ariel when I was a kid. So yeah, so we start. So So shall I talk you through the top shelf first? This is is all my foreign translations. (gasps) So this is kind of I call it my ego shelf, and they kind of have to go somewhere, even though obviously I cannot read really any of them. Do you
2: have a favourite of your foreign covers?
1: Or? The, the Japanese one here is wondrous. Wow. That is so a, what is that? I can't tell. This book is gay, although you would never oh. be able to tell, um, which is great. Um, it's, I'm just going to describe the cover Please for um,
2: oral reasons. So it's, um, I guess, white with a kind of neon orange, you get lots of um, Japanese characters, and I see a phone, a plane... Postcard, stop signs, the illustrations are really cute. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'd buy that in Hema or. <laughs> Cruel Summer has done very well in Polish. Oh. It's, that did really, really well. And what I love about that one is Cruel Summer is very much the correlation of my novels. It never sold anywhere else. There is only one foreign edition, it is the Polish one. And yeah, well, and then it went on to do really, really well. So not all of my books have been translated into fine languages, all of the above. Say,
2: so, are oh, you like a superstar in Poland? Is it like when the Ramones <laughs> went <laughs> like to Mexico? But
1: possibly, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of when I look at my royalty checks, I mean, the one that makes me money is is This Book is Gay in North America, which has done really, really well and has been challenged and banned and unbanned and unchallenged since it came out in 2014. So that's the one, I think, when, when I die, it might well be This Book is Gay that goes on my gravestone and that's fine how does it
2: feel to have your book banned did you have some
1: idea that it would be sold in some very very <laughs> conservative
2: territories and that
1: well i just thought you wouldn't sell in those I to, and it's. and i think authors would be fibbing if if they said they weren't trying to crack the north american market because it's such an enormous market you could make an awful lot of money and particularly with like say her name and with Margot and me I did sort of intend to, I thought, right, this book will play well in North America because it's quite quite an American version of what England is like. And of course, the only one of my books which has got a North American deal was This Book is Gay, which is the super explicit guide for LGBTQ people. And so there's no way, there's no way of gauging what it is foreign publishers are going to want. Um, and when we found out that Sarah Palin's district had banned This Book is Gay, it was it was a delight. Because obviously oh, it was sure. free publicity. And initially we were quite jubilant about it as it was picked up by the national press in America. Um, but then when that had blown over, it was just kind of sad. Because, of course, if you were a young LGBTQ person living in Walsilla, Alaska, you were being told by your... District that there was something weird about you. And so actually from then on, when this book is gay has been challenged in places, because it was challenged in Brazil as well, it just makes me sad. It makes me sad for the kids who are seeing that their lives are being called into question. It's a bummer.
2: I mean, I suppose if if there's publicity around, they know someone out there has their back and is there for them and wants
1: them to have the information. And this is true, yeah, maybe it's helped the book find the hands Mm. that have needed it. So maybe it's not all bad. This Book Is Gay came about because they weren't sure whether to put it in adult books or in children's books and then they came up with the zany notion of having a non-fiction teen section and I think what, what has worked really well for this book is gay um, was, and mind your head as well, was um, the rise of the YouTubers mm. because there wasn't an obvious place in Waterstones or your local bookshop for for teenage non-fiction but then when every YouTuber started doing their guide to life then mind your head and this book is gay had a place to hang out
2: a place to live a place to live Uh, so I'm going down onto the the next shelf into the A's and and B's There's an amazing range here. I love that you have Flowers in the Attic. Of
1: course. I read that much, much too young. Oh, is there any other time? (laughs) You have to read Flowers in the Attic when you're a teenager. It's YA. I, I will stand by that. I really think that Flowers in the Attic is YA fiction from a time when there wasn't YA fiction.
2: I absolutely agree because the way the characters are written and the focus on their emotional journey and their feelings, that absolutely is for teenagers.
1: Yeah. And it's not the only YA novel to deal with incest as well. I think Forbidden by Tabitha Suzuma picked up on it many, many years later in a very quite a similar plot. Oh, I
2: don't it? know that book.
1: It was a bigger success in America. I don't think it quite played out over here. And I'm not sure what happened to Suzuma's career past about 2010. But, yeah, she wrote um, a very... Um, controversial novel called Forbidden that was, that dealt with incest. I
2: so see you've got loads of um, Mallory Blackman.
1: Um. Yes, yeah, probably my favourite. Um, oh, yeah. I started writing because of Noughts and Crosses. Um, I was a primary school teacher and I was teaching year six and I went into Borders, God rest its soul, and said, right, I want a new class reader. And I think we'd We'd finished Golden Compass, which is on the other side, and um, the bookseller pointed me in the direction of Knots and Crossing, and I would heard of Mallory through and um, Pig Heartboy. And they said, "Okay, this is like Pig Heart Boy, but a bit older. And I really, really distinctly remember reading all of Noughts and Crosses on a train to Newcastle to see my old university friend. And by the end of it, by the time we reached York, I was sobbing, like openly sobbing on the train. And a woman had to ask if I was all right. And I was like, no, I'm actually not, because I don't want to spoil Nots and crosses because it's about to be a big BBC TV oh, show yeah. as well, but it it's seems harrowing. It's taken
2: that long for that to reach the screen, you know, because it was such a yeah. Well, it is such a big book, but you know, when it was published, such a powerful book.
1: Well, the option has been back and forth three times because I know Mallory now. And that's wild when you meet your author heroes and then become friends with them. She she had the rights, then they reverted back to her, then sold the rights again. And I, sometimes I think, and I was talking about this yesterday because like, weirdly, I was at Mammoth Pictures who are producing Knots and Crosses. I was there yesterday to talk about a different project. And we were talking about how sometimes it's to do with the time. And, and obviously, next to Mallory, we've got Margaret Atwood. And I think mm. there was a version of Handmaid's Tale made in the 80s as well. And it was very bad and it's not really talked about now I don't think it's really gone down as a classic and I think we are living in slightly dystopian times and so I wonder if now is absolutely the right time for Knots and Crosses maybe we needed those riots in North America maybe we needed Black Lives Matter for Knots and Crosses to make sense in a way that I think we needed Trump's presidency for Handmaid's Tale to make Mm. sense as a TV show as well so yes In theory, Knots and Crosses should have been a film about 10 years ago. But I do wonder if actually now is the time.
2: I really love that idea that as a writer, you can write something that only ever becomes more relevant. I don't love the idea that we live in an actual dystopia. But there we are. What can you do? I think it's really interesting as well that that is a book that you came to and loved. Um, You know, and it's, I think it's, is it sort of sold as YA? Is it, you know, written? Knots
1: and Crosses. Yeah. Yes, I think the TV show is, they're going for a big, crossover market I'm I think sure. it's just like a big flagship show for them and um, but certainly when the book came out Mallory in fact, I believe Mallory has only written novels for young people but that you fell in love with her as an adult reading the yeah. young adults I think it's so
2: interesting and it just shows how important it is to be kind of open-minded and I'm guessing you've got lots of you know adult fans well me hello I'm 34 and I love your books you. um but I wonder whether it, it's because it's a world that's sort of very immediate and very emotional and very real, I guess, even though obviously that is about, you know, a a future that's almost the opposite to what we know.
1: I think what's smart, and I think the reason, this is the third copy of Knots and Crosses I've earned because I do keep giving it away, is that for me it really exemplifies young adult fiction and what young adult fiction can do. It's a media, it's a page-turner in a way, and I don't like when page-turner is used as somehow a, negative thing like it's a book you really can't put down but what i love about knots and crosses is that it completely defies genre Mm. you know is it a science fiction book is it dystopia is it a political allegory is it a romance it's a romeo and juliet story um it um picks upon issues about terrorism and warfare um so it it does a lot of things and that's why people often, quite in quite a disparaging way, say, you know, will you write a grown-up book? And I'm like, well, no, because I quite like that as a YA author, you know, I've been able to write horror and romance, non-fiction. So, you know, I've been able to dip my toes in lots of different genres while all coming under that big umbrella of YA, whereas if I was going to write adult fiction, mm. I guess I would kind of have to pick a team. Yeah. Would I write crime fiction? Would I write literary fiction? You know, it's it's difficult to know what I would do, so I quite like that YA has let me manoeuvre.
2: I guess it comes back to what you were saying about, you know, having a book, well, there's where do we put this in the shop? There's no shelf for this. Yeah. And it's a, a building your own shelf time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What's that book over
1: there? Oh, we've got uh, Wuthering Heights. Good old there. Wuthering Heights, which that was... Yeah, I had to come back to that recently because I did um, Kate Moss's anthology, um, I Am Heathcliff. Oh, yeah. So I'd read, I'd attempted to read Wuthering Heights like all teenagers do, especially teenagers from Yorkshire. I'd attempted to read it as a teenager, though it was boring, attempted to read it in my 20s wasn't in love with it and then finally reading it in my 30s it all finally clicked and I realised I sort of stopped trying to make it be something that it's not like I think I wanted it to be a really scary girl story and it's not a really scary girl story it's kind of it's a story about a very toxic relationship and maybe I had to be in toxic relationships to really understand in your
2: own yeah dystopia, yeah
1: yes. and as well you know it's about I love that you know it's like, strange I think you could read Wuthering Heights alongside where is she gone girl as a book about how just love some people deserve each other because that's the message i took from both of those novels
2: that's- I love, I'd never ever thought of that comparison before. And it's making me want to do a whole other podcast about those books. So when you were a teenager, Hmm. what were those books that first really made you fall in love with reading and blew your mind a bit?
1: I've not got a lot of them here. Actually, that's a like, there's some right there. Um, I know it's probably an enormous cliche to for a child of the 80s to come back to roald Dahl. but oh when i was in 5c um but they you know roald got there's a copy of the witches there as well they were really what made me a reader and i was a very very young reader i came to books super young with mr men and things like that but then very quickly graduated onto roald Dahl notably I remember staying up very, very late to read George's Marvelous Medicine. I couldn't believe, you know, that this is a book about a boy who poisons his grandma. I mean, David Williams' couldn't dream of doing that (laughs) he just wouldn't be allowed um so um and they're so they're so dark and so funny and then as I got a bit older and I moved on to his sort of meaty ones like the witches and Matilda which have got a bit more clout to them and and are a bit more sort of sort of chapter books and by the time I'd exhausted Roald Dahl's back catalogue um I suppose I was broadly what I would deem as a young adult, sort of like 10 or 11, 12 years old. And I moved straight into Point Horrors, Nancy Drew and Doctor Who fiction. And to be honest, that those three things on a cycle pretty much got me through my whole teenage years until when I was about maybe 15, I jumped ship from Point Horror to Stephen King and Dean Koontz. And we've got, there's definitely a copy of Pet Sematry down there somewhere in the Ks. Um, It sounds so mad now, but I remember being, I think, maybe 10, and there was like
2: one point horror on the, there was Mm -hmm. a classroom bookshelf, and I don't, I think it got there by accident, and there was a real fight over (gasps) who was going to get it, it. but because it was so slick and American and alien, it just seemed like the most glamorous, glamorous thing, and I'm so sad that... um, I've, you know, wanted to revisit them and I'm gonna for me, they've not always stood up.
1: They might for no. some people. We did a blog. I mean gosh, before the podcast there was a blog. And I did um we did the point horror book club on my website. <gasps> some of the some of them have aged quite well, and oddly it wasn't necessarily the ones I loved as a teenager. Um there must be over in the S for Smith section, yeah. I can see now there's the forbidden the forbidden game trilogy. Which were originally published by Point Horror and they are still brilliant. And LJ Smith, of course, went on to do the vampire diaries, and that's what she became more known for. But I think pre-Vampire Diaries, she did um she did this a trilogy for Point Horror called The Forbidden Game. And it's almost pre Twilight. It's it's a lot of the same themes that are in Twilight.
2: Oh, I do went I just spied some um a lot of lovely Angela Carter. Yes.
1: yes possibly, my old, possibly my all possibly my favourite. Writer, possibly. You have
2: the bloody Chamber, you have nights at the circus mm-hmm. and the Passion of
1: New Eve. So the classics. When did you first meet her? I would have just moved to Brighton, and my friend Kerry. And I think so often that's the way books spread, isn't it, through friends and word of mouth. Um, I think. Just before I moved to Brighton, she got me onto Armistead Maupin, who we come to on the next shelf down, and said she sent me a copy of Tales of the City with a post-it note stuck to the front saying, they say Brighton is the San Francisco of the UK. And it was, it's so odd. I mean, it's so strange how my life has kind of followed. You know, I, I guess I came to Brighton as a Marianne Singleton. Then for a while, I was a Mouse Tolliver and then very much now an animag- Um But not long after Tales of the City, Kerry also said, have you read any Angela Carter? And she started me off with Nights at the Circus and then Wise Children, which I don't think I've got a copy of. I think I gave it to an ex. Didn't get that back, did I? Um, so yeah, I can shout ask- out to the ex. Yes, shout like to out to my the ex. let put it in the post. Thank you. Please return my copy of Wise Children. And Nights at the Circus is still my favourite Angela Carter book. I just don't think anybody writes better than her. We're having, I think it would be safe to say, a big Angela Carter revival at the mm. moment. And I think there are a lot of pretenders who are whether they know they're doing it or not, and it's really difficult when you've grown up, who are who feel slightly in the vein of Angela Carter, but I don't think we're ever going to get that. It all felt very natural. Yes, it was quite posed at the times, and you know, it was very there was a very you can hear my dog snoring, <laughs> uh, and very sort of yeah, there there was a definite dialect to it, but it was kind of it never felt forced with Angela Carter. The, the poetry was whimsical, yes, but never quirky for the sake of being quirky. And that's, I must admit, that's a big turn-off for me, is that quite kind of languid, Sophia Coppola-style novels kind of... Yeah, not naming it. I'm not going to name any names. You know,
2: the comedy world that, like, oh, I'm wacky and I've got a bin for a hat. (laughs) No, 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 no. But I do think it's really, really tough because most... Writers, I think, are a readers and finding your own voice when your head is full of so many beautiful voices
1: is a challenge. I tend not to read YA when I'm writing YA. Um, we were just saying before we started that in my writey bits, I tend to read at the moment. I just cannot get enough of kind of i'm really looking to call it women's crime but very often it's sort of that domestic crime written by female authors huge fan of erin kelly and what's really wonderful is i read <laughs> is she really oh hello erin um i can't wait for her new one um I, so, I started with um, he said, she said, and then realized there was a backlist to enjoy. And that's one of my favorite things when you discover that there is more, like more like it. A of a yeah. Better. And that's what I did with Gillian Flynn as well. Gone Girl, like for a lot of people, Gone Girl was my introduction to Gillian Flynn. And then when I found out I could also get my hands on sharp objects and dark places, I was really excited about that too.
2: I still can't quite, in my head, you know, I. She's still Gillian. I know she's Gillian, but she is, yeah. it's very <laughs> hard to make that shift. Gone Girl, did you know anything about that book when you read it? Did the twist take you aback?
1: I just sort of half figured it out. And I, I think it's one of those, and Gone Girl maybe more than most, suffered from that you'll never see the twist coming thing, which has been basically, you know, that is every book that has been released. Although I think I sense that the publishing industry is slightly tiring of the type of book that has followed Gone Girl Out, where the whole thing, the whole marketing pun is mm. you'll never see the twist. Because, I mean, that it's led to some really audacious twists, including some which are nonsense.
2: It's personal entirely, but I'd much rather know what's happening because I want to know sort of how it happens more than have that... <gasps>
1: That's what I tried to do with Cruel Summer. I think with Cruel Summer, which was my second novel, like, way back in 2013, there's only seven characters in the book, and you know that one of them has done it. Mm. So it's not a who done it, it's a why done it. And, yeah, I'm t- I, too, I'm a fan of a why done it. Mm. Like, you know who's done it, but why? Interesting.
2: It's mm. a strong genre. I think I get another business idea. Dana <laughs> um, Go. Oh, no, I can't even. I love that uh-huh. book. I was sold that by a bookseller in Blackwells in Oxford. in a sort of like, just, you know, I'd just done an event there. And I said, you can sell me anything. What shall I read that uh. I might not read otherwise? And I thought it was really charming.
1: Yeah, I've just worked with Simon on the Proud anthology as well. And he is just the sweetest man in the world. I thought it was brilliant. YA, and I say this, full of love of for, for YA, it's my job and it's become my life. Sometimes, you know, it can take itself very, very seriously. And Noah can't even is just fun, just super fun. And there's great? another one there, Lobsters by Tom and Lucy, by um Lucy Iverson and Tom Ellen is another YA which is sort of from that in betweeners school a very British, quite naughty, knowing sense of humour that I don't think America does very well. So um well, not relevant, but
2: odd. Um, I was in an Edinburgh Fringe play with Tom Ellen, possibly the worst play that's ever been written or made. I don't know if I can Is get seats to this. Tom
1: Allen. Yeah. No, that's because I checked because I got
2: the press release and I was like because I knew the PR a little bit and I'm like. Really weird question for Tom, but I don't suppose, because I'm really rubbish at Facebook and we sort of lost touch a bit. Well, he's very offline as
1: well.
2: Yeah, he's very offline. I think he's in Paris now. But um, Mm. rumours, there are rumours of a DVD of this play. And I think we both sort of say one day we'll meet up and watch it, but I don't think anyone can quite face it. Do it. So yeah, um, love that, yeah. No, yeah more more funny YA. A
1: bit of um, Louise Renison, who yes. I love so much. Oh, yeah, and much, much missed as well. Oh, those yes. books meant an awful lot to an awful lot of girls.
2: But, you know, we're only about three shelves down as well. There's so much here. I see um, the Armistead Mopan. I really, really love these editions because I think yes. those...
1: They're the best ones they've ever done.
2: I love these covers. I'm going to grab, let's go for baby cakes in the middle.
1: So are they all like, because do you know what? Those have been lent and swapped. So now, actually, so in my possession, apparently, I've only got more Tales of the City, significant others and baby cakes.
2: So you're missing Tales and
1: Further Tales. Tales, Further Tales and, and sure the Show Review, which at one point I have had, so I don't know where they've gone. Again, probably the same ex. <sighs> do you have a favourite?
2: Is that... An impossible
1: Ooh. question. So let me get this right. So, tales of the city is when Marion moves. Further tales of the city is the one with the transubstantiation in the think church.
2: So, and Grace Cathedral. Yes. And that guy, who's the reporter.
1: Yeah. Then, third one is the cult when Jim Jones. Turns oh, up with in them, San with
2: Mona. Yes. And um, is that GD? the one when um, they're in Britain and Mona marries that guy? Is it Mona? No. Um,
1: Oh, yes, it, no, not mine. The man is the model. Um, yes, but she's no, no, the one that's right. who yeah. goes off
2: to the stately home. Yes, that, I think that's um, four or five. And it's Michael Tolliver in London in yes. the little flash in Notting not Hill.
1: Significant others. A Holiday in the Redwoods. No, so that's the holiday one. Um that's the holiday one? So this is one where they're at like a country retreat. Um, a Holiday in the Redwood goes uproariously around when the opposing sexes camp out rather too close to each other for comfort. Among these entangled in the mayhem Didi Reformed oh, w- that's not the kind of
2: not quite Camp David, but it's when all the guys go off and there's like the empowerment. Camp. Yes,
1: that's right, yep, that's the one. And then Share Review is where Mary goes full dark Marianne and she oh, kind of goes
2: gets her glamorous job. Yeah, and... and
1: abandons her family, yeah. And the Shauna is on the scene then. That's right, yes. Um oh and hang on Shanna's the daughter isn't yes yeah. little baby Shona, and then Connie's, on the other yes. side are the newer ones so there's Michael Tolliver Lives and Marianne in the Autumn and Mary the last was it The Last oh Days God, of the last day Animatrical, animatrical? Yeah. Oh. Like, well, I
2: was reading that and just you know when you're crying and you don't even know it and I think producer Dale came in and found me and
1: thought there had been a death <laughs> I'm like, yeah, well, no, well. yeah, well no spoilers mm. but it's I mean and the new series is coming to Netflix in June so it's like I cannot wait because it's yeah, it feels right. I and mean, when, you, when you look at the casting as well, like Ellen Page, Ashauna feels really right, and Laura Linney, and Olympia Dukakis. And normally I would not be championing a cisgender woman playing a trans character, but obviously Olympia has played Anna Magical throughout original. and was amazing. Yeah. and And so I think I would have been sadder to lose Olympia than I would to to gain a trans actress but amazing we have anyway because mm. apparently the new series will flash back to Anna Madrigal's younger life where she will be played by a trans actress and if you've never read a Tales of the City book oh treat yourself just start with Tales of the City there's nothing else quite like them. I'm
2: quite jealous
1: of people who've got imagine, that. Imagine yeah I do, I to discover re- it for the first time. I
2: reread those quite often but you said you're not much of a, a rereader
1: Not much, but Tales of the City is one that I absolutely have. I think I've read the first one certainly three times, with Beecham and Marianne's slightly doomed relationship with Beecham. 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 Um, Beecham. But just it's—I mean—it's so um, it's heartbreaking and Anna Madrigal's relationship. Um, in that first one is so good as well. Um, although I've I realise in this moment I have given away the twist. And I mean, and it's but then now having a trans character wouldn't be a twist now. Mm. So I mean, it's very much a sign of its time yeah. that, that there's like a big reveal kind of that what one of the characters is trans. Kind of if there is such a thing as a queer community, you know, it's partly because of the way his books have brought people together, I guess. And I wonder if those books have cemented a community and made a community, because there certainly isn't one in real life. So... When um, I uh, saw him and I saw you at um, at the Lit
2: Salon talking, and yeah. it was properly like, I don't know, being a teenager and maybe seeing Beyonce or Gaga, so just seeing him on stage, and I was like crying. <laughs> what were you doing? I, don't, I can't tell you. I can't explain this. But I think I found those, but when I was a very, very lonely teenager and knowing they, I didn't need them like other people needed
1: them and yet they reached me at a time when I needed to be reached. I mean it's, it's a lost, it's, they're all orphans and I think the, the notion of the, the family you make is, is mm. a trope that's been, I've done it with all of the above and with lots of my books, you know whether you identified more with Mary-Anne or with Dee Dee or with Michael you know these were all kind of orphans in a way mm. and people who made that family on Barbary Lane
2: We'll be back to Gino soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so valuable that if it were a currency, it would be the only thing holding its value against the euro. This week, it's A Small Person Far Away, also published as Bombs on Aunt Dainty by Judith Kerr, published by HarperCollins. This is an autobiographical novel based on Kerr's own experiences of living as a Jewish teenage refugee in London during the Blitz. It's one of my favourite books of all time. It makes you realise how many of the things we experience as vulnerable living humans are completely universal and Kerr's astonishing honesty in the way she portrays a family who love each other intensely, but sometimes feel as though they're tearing each other apart. is deeply moving and often very funny. I love this book so much and I'm sure that you will too. That's A Small Person Far Away by Judith Kerr, who died on May the 23rd at the age of 95 and will be missed enormously. Now, back to Juno.
1: I see Stephen King. Um yep, was a big... It's a funny one because, again, I read a lot of Dean Koontz and Stephen King when I was a teenager. Often more Dean Koontz than Stephen King because Dean Koontz had a lot more female protagonists. Oh, I don't know Dean Koontz at all. So no. very, very yeah, similar to Stephen King. Quite pulpy horror epics. Um... Often, you know, I don't know if they were passing the Bechdel test. You know, these women were very often in peril or being terrorised by some ghost or serial killer. But Stephen King, I don't know if he would be the first to admit or not, but his, his women characters are not the best. They're often sexy mums. Yeah, she's had two kids, but she's still really sexy. And I didn't massively pick up on that when I was reading them as a teenager. But weirdly... Again, while I was writing some why, I thought, oh gosh, I need something to read. Let's read some Stephen King and some Dean Koontz. And yeah, it became clear that Dean Koontz's women characters did have a lot more agency than Stephen King's. But then Stephen King's are scarier than Dean Koontz's. So it's kind of, which would you rather?
2: I I want to read Dean Koontz now. Although I'm not wild about being scared, but I was just thinking about Misery and Mm. what that book would be if there was a gender flip. And I can't work out whether because it's a woman obsessed with a man, if we're supposed to think she's sort of somehow more more pathetic and more of a loser, where she'd be more immediately menacing, or he'd be more immediately menacing if it was, mm. you know, the other way around.
1: I think it's a bit, it's, I was once told, you know, journalism works by way of, you know, sort of dog bites man isn't very interesting. Man bites dog is a front page. And so I think the sad thing is men enact violence on women so often that it almost sort of wouldn't work in Misery mm. because it's just, oh, yeah, it's, it's a domestic violence story. It's about a man beating a woman. It's, it's oh, it's become, you know, this is very familiar, but having a woman, particularly a little nerdy woman, mm. trap a man in a house and break his legs and force him to write a novel, that's a bit more like Man Bites Dog. That's yeah. that's more unusual and more strange. But interesting how quickly even Kathy Bates is really terrifying and Oscar-winning portrayal mm. in that film was played for laughs. Mm. And very quickly, th- that character has almost become a bit of a joke.
2: But that's exactly it. The, well, the, I think the it joke like is Sanders how as well, kind of... It, which yeah, didn't help, but, to be fair, yeah. which was very funny. Yeah. But the joke being like, you know, well, if she was an attractive woman... It would be fine. But because yeah. it, it's this sort of, you know,
1: frumpy, dowdy woman, you're like, oh, God, I can't imagine anything worse. Whereas, oh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Mm. Psychos can be very sexy as well. Single like female. female. Oh, I uh, love a 90s fatal thriller. Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction, yeah. Oh, I want to watch some 90s thrillers now. Do you like being scared? you? Yes.
2: And find especially in books. Do you suspend your disbelief and just let yourself get a speech, or is a bit of you out of the book going, It's not real?
1: It's definitely, definitely harder for a book to get under your skin than it is for a film where you, they are so reliant on sound effects and misdirection of drawing your attention into different places. And I was when it was when I was starting out writing Say Her Name, I read a thing about the way we process information is we're actually even without knowing it, reading ahead a little bit. So we've slightly processed the scare before we get to the scare. So like a cat jumping out of a kitchen cupboard just isn't going to work in fiction. The trick with, say, her name was to how can I create Something which is going to stay with you after you've put the mm. book away, and it's obviously the Joey Tribbiani putting putting The Shining in the freezer to stop it being <laughs> scary. Something that that that's not even going to work. And I think my favourite scary book, and I'm assuming it's on the other side, is a book called Dark Matter by Michelle Paver. That's, right, let's yeah, we're, we're going over to the other bookshelf, so it should be under the P for Paver section. So there it is. Yeah, and Dark Matter is the scariest book see, I've ever the read.
2: It's From <laughs> the spine, so I should say as well. I think I might have put my contact lens in the wrong eyes. Oh, no. All day I've been like, this isn't quite right. So I'm just like, this doesn't look particularly scary, sort of waving in front of my face. But it's beautiful. It's got this lovely kind of pale, lemony, primrosy colour. Wow. Lovely blue foil, like little Mm. birds in the sky, a sort of a a seascape. Uh, It's a Richard and Judy book club back in 2011. It
1: has that cover because originally it had a much, much scarier cover. And then it got Richard and Judy book club and they put a much, dare I say it, more friendly cover on the front. A blood-curdling ghost story. It really is, and it is true, and how a tree stump can be as scary as it is, but um, it's about a bunch of Arctic explorers who go up to do some sort of scientific research I believe it is and the the trip is fraught with peril and one by one they have to leave until one man is left in this cabin by himself and starts to think there is a reason why none of the fishermen will come to this remote Norwegian island and he thinks he might not be alone. It's really scary. Ooh. It's brilliant, it's absolutely and brilliant.
2: And this is the scariest book. The scariest and book I have personally
1: books. read. Yeah. I see you've got a lot of Patrick Ness books. Um, I really love those covers well I'm I'm super good friends with Patrick Ness so um and I think Patrick is um among the best writers for young adults he never patronizes young adults he um doesn't talk down to them he speaks and writes to them on their level and he's got that thing where it's because I, I grew up very much on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I think that Patrick does that thing that Joss Whedon did with Buffy, which is he explores the horrors of being a t- teenager through metaphorical horrors, be it monsters or, um, you know, and pa- Patrick's book always has an element of the dystopic or the dystopian and or the speculative maybe, perhaps more. I mean, if, if listeners haven't read the Chaos Walking trilogy, I would urge them to do so before the film comes out next year. It's going to be good. If you were to go back to school
2: and someone said, okay, you've got to teach a class this summer and you had to teach them one book, what would it be? Oh. From YA, of YA. Yeah, well, it could be anything, anything you like. I don't know how old these imaginary children are. Maybe they're sort of year six.
1: Did you always teach Ooh, year six? Or I, did, you? Yeah, I mostly taught year six, so I did four. I did seven years in school, four of which were in year six. Do you know, probably, ooh, you see, that's really difficult because we, we've now come to the P for Pullman section as well. Yeah, I, I will do Northern Lights by Philip Pullman. I think because Knots and Crosses would be a very close second. So it'd be one of those, I mean, because I used to do both. I mean, that was the difference. But yeah, I think... I'll let you have 2 I'm a very generous headmistress. Thank you. So yeah, there'd be Knots and Crosses in there. There would be Northern Lights by Philip Pullman. You know, I would, I think The Knife of Never Letting Go by Patrick Ness is phenomenal. I think... Obviously Monster Calls is would be a great show as well. Um there's i I'm just looking at it right now, there's only over Yours by Louise O'Neill. Really, really wonderful, wonderful stuff coming out of YA fiction.
2: I really love that idea that there's you know, there are ways of exploring a really extreme time and externalising those horrors, I think that's a fascinating way of Understanding it and approaching it.
1: That that list I've just reeled off, that that could be a list of horror novels. You know, none of them were published as horror novels, but, you know, Northern Lights, looking at the dangers of dogmatic religion um, and, you know, the idea that you could have your soul severed by the church... Is terrifying, and what I love about why is that sometimes we fly under the radar as well. Like, had had his dark materials been published as adult fiction, I think possibly they would have been flagged as blasphemy in a way that they won't. You know, only Over yours is a book about feminism. Knots mm. um, and crosses is a book about race, and I really like that. I'm part of. I'm part of a type of literature where we can tackle really, really big ideas. And obviously, like, my last one tackled addiction, and um, the new one tackles fame. Mm. So it's, I, th- I I like that I can tackle those things, but in quite a safe environment, for me, what YA does quite well is, you know, we're not finger wagging or preaching mm. about these big issues, but we're more saying, well, why don't we all talk about them together? Like, actually, that's not fair. I, found, I haven't had any flack... For clean. Sometimes I, I see people saying, oh, it's for older readers. But I think young people should be talking about addiction and mental health. You know, I think. That,
2: that, you know, don't yeah. wait until it comes up. <laughs> yeah, don't wait, don't, until, yeah, don't wait until
1: you're on heroin. <laughs> you love about heroin. I, mean, that's a I terrible. should find
2: yeah. out more about this. Yeah. What I love so much about, there's so much I love about um, meat markets, oh, okay. is that you've got, as well as the issues of consent mm. and, you know, abuse, and but you've also got very very happy consensual sex you've got sex that sort of is you know fine at the time and then regrettable all the different well not all the different kinds of sex obviously but Mm. it's just so lovely and it's something that I wish I'd had a lot more of when I was a younger reader was just like people have sex and Mm. it's basically fine and nobody dies of
1: it. Well that was I'm glad you've picked up on that because that was something that was conscious I was I knew when when I started the book it would it would look at abuse within the fashion industry. But then I thought, well, no, actually, don't make sex the enemy. Mm. And I think sometimes YA has been guilty of making sex the enemy and it's a very much a slightly older trap that if a girl did have sex she would get pregnant or someone would die or And
2: I think this idea as well that Jana in that book can absolutely be someone who has been abused and she's a a victim of a bad man, but not like, oh, but, you know, she was a virgin and she was pure before, you know, that's mm-hmm. not, that doesn't ever come into question. I think that's really no, yeah, powerful she's... and
1: really important. And as well, I, I, it did come from, and the previous novel, Clean, Lexi had had a relationship with a guy called Brady that was quite problematic. And knowing everything that I learned about addiction and recovery, it wasn't a good idea for those characters to have a relationship while they were in a rehab mm. facility. It was a dreadful idea. And then I started to sort of think, well, hang on a minute. We keep telling, I always assume my readers are, are girls and women. You know, if we constantly present these toxic relationships, where are we to learn the good ones? Yeah. And I want to, so I wanted to kind of do like a, a role model within the character Yana's boyfriend is called Ferdy. Mm. And with Ferdy, I wanted oh, I to, thank you. I love Ferdy. well. So just say, this is what a good boyfriend looks mm. like. And I know there was questions about, you know, should he, you know, should he turn out to be secretly evil? And I was like, no, because actually in real life, men by and large don't turn out to be evil. And there's a couple I worked, because no spoilers, but there's another character in Meat Market who... I know both my agent and my editor thought would turn out to be a villain. And I was like, no, no, he's just a nice guy. He's oh, not He's I not a shit. Who... Yeah, yeah. so, um, and it, it was interesting to me that they assumed he was going to go evil. And yes, a lot of men do go evil, but not all of them. But and-
2: also really great, because, you know, as you said, you know, would imagine that maybe a lot of your readers are girls and women but when you know boys and men pick it
1: up and you know they get absorbed and they're like this is a nice role model for me that's what you should do Ferdie's a good guy, you know, and I think it's interesting that you know while I was writing this book, I met my boyfriend who is very much a Ferdy. You know, he works in IT, he's a nerd, uh, <laughs> and yeah, he's just he 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 speaks that language yeah. of the internet. He knows a bit of feminism. Cosmic
2: ordering. You
1: wrote a perfect boyfriend, and then he appeared. Strange, yeah, be. random, but strange but true.
2: I like, I think it's all part of big magic. I'm... Yes. Into that, I keep saying things I want to ask you about. I'm going to go way down because okay. it's one of my favourite books, and I do talk about it too much. But I'm very excited to see your copy of *Valley of Dolls*, which <gasps> I think I have this yes, exact one. The um, is this the Julie Burchill forward? It's the, yes, the Virago. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you read *Valley of the Dolls* first?
1: Oh, a while ago now. It was again after I'd moved to Brighton. Someone somewhere has my very beautiful hardback that sort of flock I had a flock cover one I have no idea where it is someone yeah really beautiful ones and it's gone and so I sort of got in a strop and then maybe about maybe about 10 years ago now I sort of vowed I wanted to start reading books that I'd always pretended I'd read so like one of those was Handmaid's Tale, actually. I'd never actually read. I'd read other Outward*, but I'd never read Handmaid's Tale. So um, Valley of the Dolls was in that group of books that when people talked about Valley of the Dolls, I nodded along like I knew what they were talking about. But then I actually sat down and read it. And obviously it's very of its time, but I do love it. And it's kind of like a lot of ensemble pieces. It's not really about the main character. It's all about the Neely character who is so much better. The, the one who does become the pill-popping... Nightmare.
2: <laughs> but what I, I love the way, uh, there's, there's so much I love about it. And I do think it was ahead of its time. Mm. And having women who were incredibly flawed and women who are kind of openly supportive, but also jealous and competitive and messed up and very I think those relationships between them are sort of authentic in the way they're ultra supportive but ultra not together. yes that,
1: they don't spend a lot of time I'm
2: never ever really interested in anything they're doing with men I just want yes. more more good chats and more wig flushing would be
1: be nice um, and as well you can you can see how a book like Valley of the Dolls you know you know when they were developing Sex in the City at HBO mm-hmm. Valley of the Dolls must have come up that notion that, you know, ben, the different kinds of famous a writer, a publicist, a, an art gallerist, you know. Can... That
2: fabulous sort of Jackie Collins thing, as well, mm. of glamour that is written in a way that's very, very accessible. You know, the glamour never, ever tries to be authentic. It's like, it's a child's rendering of glamour. <laughs> like, you're in the big pink limousine that's 17 miles long, and you're like, I opened my wallet and there with $10,000 in there. and Wearing a fur. Always wearing a fur. And obviously, Jacqueline Suzanne, I think, lived in a world of very authentic glamour, that she didn't have, you know, she could have written about what she'd known, and it would have been a lot more real and probably a lot less entertaining. I think a lot about um, something Lucy Mangan wrote in her book about books about ponies for girls. All of them written for girls who would love to have a pony. And not they were not at all for girls who had them because like they were out with the ponies. They weren't reading. If anyone who really knew about a horse, they'd be like, well, that's not how it works. And mm-hmm. that's not how you use a bridle. But it's a horse book. But for it those really of us who'd rather have a big a pink horse. limousine.
1: Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. What oh, else? I what else is there? Oh, I love that one. It's hilarious. I found that in a charity shop. It doesn't have words, just spooky pictures. I think it's Ooh, Dutch.
2: a story to tell. These are, it looks a bit like Dick Brick. He's not the Miffy man, I think he man, did do
1: Miffy, Yeah these look very... I love these. I once got my year sixes to write the words. Oh, that's um, such a great idea. And they were just, they were so filthy. And these children <laughs> were year sixes. But it's, but yeah, you can see that if you take them very literally, this is quite a dark book. So sleeping Orange Child,
2: a cockerel. A cockerel wakes Wake him up. up.
1: He's awake. hes He has a wash in his pyjamas. And brushes um, his brushes teeth. teeth that's very much a.
2: it's like um, you know in PE when you don't want to go in the shower so you just like get your towel wet and he's like I'm in my pyjamas but I'm holding a wet sponge so, so I've definitely had watched. a wash I don't know what that is That's. I think that oh, set that's out his outfit for the day yeah. A chair mm-hmm. he's eating some toast mm-hmm. walking along he's walking um, to the shops and I don't know why I'm assuming this is a boy, but, he might, you know, they, they might not be a
1: He's boy. He's very stylish with his um, white shoes and white hat and matching buttons. It's like, um,
2: like, it could be in a, a Jean-Luc Godard film. Mm-hmm. But
1: lucky he sees oh, some bunnies.
2: Bunnies have come. These are sort of behind him.
1: Now, this is where it gets really oh, weird. Oh,
2: he comes upon a weeping clown?
1: I and mean, we believe a We went for a wizard. Ah. Yeah, a small weeping wizard.
2: The opposite of a laughing gnome, yeah. a weeping wizard.
1: And Now, this is where the kids really had fun, because they read it as just abducting a child. <laughs> so at this point, the plot took a twist.
2: Because the, who we to be this, this child in his white hat and blue suit, has got the... Wizard. We, with the weeping wizard under mm-hmm. his arm. But now... Now they're building with really, really big blocks that Uh are much bigger than either character. And now he's making some food. Or he's got a watering can. But let's assume it's food Food. because they are sharing a plate. Uh Empty plate between them. It's
1: quite strange. They say, I think they're saying a prayer, I think.
2: And he had a tiny spoon for Uh the wizard and a tiny
1: Then he makes him watch while he's in the shower. That's again what the kids (laughs) pointed out. Again, not me.
2: And now they're both brushing their teeth at the end of the day, and now they're sleeping together. You can see why if the it's year Dockhouse sixes Syndrome. You can
1: see why the year sixes went to town on that one. That's a really, really beautiful
2: book, though, and I'm sure much more and that's a collection of the first sweetly. story
1: anthologies that I worked on, which was when I used to do one day a week in um, inner city London schools working on poetry with um, talented young writers. Yeah, that was, I mean, I used to live, I did it for six years, that oh, was wow. once a week I would go up to schools, I started in Lambeth, and just going up and doing poetry workshops once a week, and it was brilliant.
2: Once upon a ton of lunch? Um... That's
1: actually not one of my oh. that's that one's one of mine. I like the name. That one's mine.
2: Islands Lifted of the Mind. Lifted by oh. the Legs was one of mine. So, did you, were you working
1: with students? Yeah, that's right, yeah, so and once a week. Yeah, you sort of set activities the for them, they're so talented, The and... It's interesting because I've got a big bugbear about the way poetry is taught. You know, when we have such amazing contemporary poets and yet we still rely on these very pale male stale poets. And, you know, I always used to get the class. You say, right, who here has written a poem from the perspective of a soldier in World War One? And every hand would go up and they'd say, Hans, if you've written a poem from the perspective of you none of them have and they're being told that their voice and that their world isn't as valid as some dead poet from 150 years ago. It's wild. Even when I started writing I felt oh I haven't been to author college you know I haven't done this properly and you assume that Philip Pullman and J.K. Rowling and Patrick Ness must have been to some author college and of course like getting that, a hogwarts letter like and I never got my hogwarts letter I was from a council house in Bradford I never got my hogwarts letter I'm still waiting on my hogwarts letter and I don't think I'm going to get one it turns out of course you know I just needed that push and that you you just need a little bit of sort of self confidence and think well my I'm sure my book is as good as anybody else's kind of and and then off off I went.
2: I know you said that it was reading you Noughts know, and Crosses that made you think this is something that...
1: That was a big moment, yeah. I want to do. What was it
2: about that that made you realise that you had...
1: I just thought of, I... So Noughts and Crosses started a bit of a YA spree and I was becoming very aware that there was a lot of American YA arriving on the scene and of course that was on the back of Twilight. I mean... Um, Actually, I I quite enjoy Twilight 1. I think there's some merit to it. I think, you know, Bella is a really, really mangy teenager in a very believable way. And I think a lot of editors would have said, could you, you know, cheer her up a bit? But actually, she was believably sour. Um, I mean, obviously, beyond that, they went absolutely insane. (laughs) But the first one, I think, is great. And so I started borrowing the books from the kids in my class and I knew very soon after Knots and Crosses, you know, if I was going to write a novel, I think it would be before this audience. And so I read, I kept on reading, and I read Noughts and Crosses and Hunger Games and, and various other pieces of post-Twilight supernatural stuff. But it, it was starting to strike me that they weren't massively diverse. Now, I think this was probably because at the time I was just reading those big ones. Mm. I've I've said to readers, look, if you just keep reading Harry Potter, don't be surprised when you only read the same characters. You know, like, but but I've just read it so many times and they're still all white. And so (laughs) I don't understand. And so um, I sort of said, well, okay, what did you love when you were a teenager? You loved sort of high school films and The Craft and Cruel Intentions and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But you weren't American. You went to school in Yorkshire. What if you and your mates were witches? And and I think all good books start with a what if, and so I sat down. My at the time my partner was a pilot, and so he was away a lot of the time. And so I while while I was bored, kind of and to stop myself cheating, um, I was very young, and <laughs> I said, like, well, let's let's write this book. And it was kind of like the craft meets Twin Peaks, and in a very fluke, fluky. And a lot of it is timing and luck. Holler Pike, that was the book that became Holler Pike, and it did get published. And that was I think. So I started writing Holopike in 2008, so it's a little over 10 years. If I'd have left it very much later, it wouldn't have sold because already The Hunger Games was massively taking off. It was just before the first film came out and all publishers wanted was... Hunger Games esque mm. in a world where music is forbidden but dancing is mandatory. Those kind of stories. <laughs> and um, and so um, um, Hollow Pike got its book. Deal. It was a huge flop. I mean, actually, look at it. I, I've reread Hollow Pike recently because we've just sold the rights to the TV show because, as is these things, witchcraft awesome. is massively coming back around in quite a big way with Sabrina and everything. So we've just sold the rights to Hollow Pike. And so I was rereading it and it's, you know, it's well, fun. It's like, again,
2: with notes and crosses, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's.
1: it's of its moment, and then,
2: for whatever reason, it's not... And then it, it comes back round. I find that hugely, hugely comforting.
1: Well, covens of witches are a great way to explore female friendship. Mm. And I think, you know, books about feminism and young women are so hot right now. And so I think it, it's, it doesn't massively surprise me that witches are back on the agenda. So, so where did we get to? We're nearly um, at Zed now. We're yeah, nearly there. We're running out of books.
2: What's the Zeddiest of... It'll of be Mark, then, or Zuzak. Or I
1: suppose. is probably on quite a lot of shelves. Um, does everyone, has everyone you've been to had a copy of The Secret History by Donna Tarr? Is that literally on everybody's bookshelf? It is on quite a lot. Do you do you love it? Predictably, yes. Oh, good. And I want to not because it's become a bit, it's a bit of a hipster cliche, isn't it? And what's your favourite book? Let me guess. But um, it works. And it sh- what I love about Secret History is that every character in that book should be an insufferable dickhead. But actually you love them. And that. There must be some sort of magic there, and that was something that I tried to do with Clean in particular. Was I created a character who is loathsome, and sort of said, "But do you understand why she's loathsome, and can you learn to love her?" And I think when you look at these fantastically privileged sub sort of characters, and it, but then it, you know, I'm a I love ridiculous nonsense like Cruel Intentions as well and Gossip Girl. So um, I don't. I think as as well, and, and I will. This is a hill I will die on. I think. I think secret history could be classed as a YA novel it's about university it, yes. students
2: because I truly truly loved it and I feel like I came mm. to it quite late I was definitely in my 20s when I read it and I think I was a bit daunted by because it it's a really big book mm. with this big black cover and oh it's a that's a lot and I think I just I loved that that world of I love an obnoxious elite mm. preppy universe and I love it so much more which I have a love hate Relationship with Brett Easton Ellis, but have you read the Rules of Attraction? Yeah, of attraction. and Less Than Zero. Yeah, but Again. that sense that that's the same time in that universe, mm-hmm. and it's like, and every so often, it's like the door is being opened upon a party, and you see the Rules of Attraction basic bitches mm-hmm. screeching and screaming yeah. through the little cracks in the secret history, and vice versa. Um, have you read Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld? No. I think you'd love it. Uh, Again, it's that, oh my God, it's so good. And there's a review that was really mean about it where it's like, but someone said, well, nothing really happens. Like, exactly. Yeah. That's my kind of book. But she goes, it's about a woman, she gets into her head that she wants to go to a private school and sort of gets a scholarship and like no one in her family is expecting mm-hmm. her to because she's kind of academically quite average. And I'm like, oh, I guess we better send you here. And she sort of it's it's not bad but it's not good and she spends just a lot of time wondering why she's there but it's so love and so teenagery y because it, she's not kind of you know rolling around going oh this is a big terrible disaster it's just that feeling really nothing and feeling very much like your life is all
1: sort of periphery um so yeah my, my new one the new 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 one that I'll be working on for the rest of this year that's deals with some of those issues around privilege and I shall say no more. Oh. Shh, all for later. all for I later. Would that be interesting and useful to read Curtis and Felder? Would that be it distracting? Might. It might. I mean, it's another YA, so if it, that one isn't... But prob- like I say, I'm a big, big fan of books like Secret History, like Flowers in the Attic, which aren't officially sold mm. as YA, but I think there's a real argument there, but then weirdly it's an argument I think
2: PrEP is absolutely that book I'm Mm. pretty sure it was sort of marketed as as adult fiction, but it is I think super super and admit
1: I've heard that because I've come the other way and I I don't sense any snobbery around YA, I'm very proud to be a YA author but I had people saying and it's even come up with um, Clean at the moment's on the prize for the YA book prize, thank you and people saying, oh is this even YA and I was like, yes, I think it is (laughs) YA, <laughs> um, because because the characters are a little bit older mm. and um, Lexi's a heroin addict. But I'm like, yeah, she's 17 and it's published by a YA list. So it's definitely YA, but it just deals with some very adult issues.
2: But I wonder whether there's that, because people are snobbish They're like, well, I, I like this. And it's like, you know, with Harry Potter's in adult covers. Mm,
1: I, I get know, the really.
2: impression from what you said that the YA... Writing community is—it sounds like an especially friendly and supportive one. It sounds like you've got some, yeah. I mean, it's crackers in your gang.
1: I think we're all a little bit worried. It, the industry is definitely—I don't want to say turning its back on YA, but it's lost a lot of faith and a lot of confidence in YA. I think we haven't had a big smash certainly not in the last 18 months since The Hate You Give came out, Angie Thomas's mm. one, and that sold really phenomenally well. The Lie Tree by Frances Harding sold really well. Um, and before that, obviously The Fault in Our Stars, which was actually published on an adult list, but is very much a YA novel. And so I think, yeah, at the, the moment there's a little bit of reticence about YA. I would love them, however, when, when they're looking at these figures to include Handmaid's Tale, which mm. is on the A-level set list. So how many 16 and 17-year-olds are reading Handmaid's Tale as young adults and yet all those sales, and I think it was the best-selling book of 2018, that's not being included towards YA. So that frustrates me. Those of us who are left, and it's really depressing, but a lot of us who were debuts around the same time as me just aren't doing it anymore. You know, they're either writing adult novels or have slightly um, gone back to other lines of work. But those of us who are still Writing UKYAs are so Holly Bourne and non Pratt, Kim Curran, Tanya Byrne. We we're all still very close and we obviously we we move around the country together for Edinburgh Festival and Hay Festival and YALC. and, and we all see each other year on year and, and there's a lot of I think a lot of shared love and respect there because our work is so often looked down on, even though, you know, Cleanest sold thirty thousand copies. That's, that, that's, that's a lot more than a lot of literary novels. So um yeah, so it's kind of people are reading it, and and, it, and it's adults, and yet yeah. there is still this snobbery. And so I think, you know, when we get together, you know, we can take comfort in the fact that our books often sell very, very well. And I've been particularly lucky in that in that both Clean and Meat Market have received a huge level of reviewing and attention from the mainstream media in a way that most way doesn't get that. Huge thanks
2: to Gino. Follow her and share your love at Gino Dawson on Twitter and Instagram. Meat Market is published by Quirkus and it's riveting, powerful and uplifting. I'd thoroughly recommend it. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Biblio Bibuli. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for Shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, I leave you with an observation from Pat Conroy in The Prince of Tides. People that like to read are always a little fucked up.